0: Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. One of the reasons it's great, it has smart design, they use premium fabrics, and online, it's an easy, simple shopping experience. Mack Weldon looks great, it feels great, they're crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear. Their shirts are naturally antimicrobial, which means They eliminate odor, all that, and they're shipped right to your door. Here's a great part. If you don't like your first pair of Mack Weldon underwear, you can keep it and they will still give you your money back. No questions asked. And with Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're going to be wanting to get some stocking stuffers for your loved ones. What better gift to give than Mack Weldon underwear? Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using the promo code JJ. Welcome back to the J.J. Reddick Podcast. This week, we are joined by Minnesota Timberwolves all-star Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony and I had a great conversation. Carl Anthony and I touched on a bunch of different topics, including his imaginary friend Carlito. We talk about NBA unicorns, what it's like playing for Tibbs, and Carl Anthony's OCD tendencies in regards to his body. It's a great listen. Let's get right to the conversation. All right, and we are now joined by Carl Anthony Towns, Buddy, I really appreciate you doing this. Appreciate you having me, man. Actually, when I when I had my old podcast, I tried to get you on. It didn't work out. I think it was over All-Star Break a couple of years ago, but um have always wanted to just have a conversation with you. You've always you've always struck me as a as a very well-rounded individual. And you're you're thoughtful and you you think a lot about things just outside of basketball. But I'm gonna start with something a little playful, and I want I just want you to tell me and and the listeners who are not aware of about Carlito (laughs) Carlito for me started in college with coach Calipari um
1: he always realized uh I think a lot of us athletes always do we're always instead of talking back to the coach we're talking to ourselves and he said I was always talking back to myself and he was like must be talking to Carlito and um Barry Roser or Slice was our assistant coach he was like no coach Kyle he's talking to, to Carlito and Carlito struck from then on and uh, it always stuck. So anytime we're in the games or anything, and you see me talking, he's like, stop talking to Carlito or whatever the case may be. And it stuck.
0: And I guess it's become something almost like my little penny. But this hasn't like followed you in your NBA career. This no. was like mostly at college. Yeah. So so a buddy of mine, he said he had heard about Carlito and he's like, you got to ask him about this. So as I was doing my research, I started thinking about watching you play and I've watched you play now for three years. And I see that dialogue happening on the court. And I can relate to that dialogue. I'm going to share a story with you. So we have these breakfast meetings with the Sixers. And this past week, the, the movie director M. Night Shyamalan, who who's did Signs and Unbreakable, a bunch of other movies, he came and spoke to our team for about an hour. And this is a guy who who reads emotions. That's what he does for a living. He He tries to get actors to portray something and have it show up on screen and then sort of elicit an emotion. So he's going through a few guys on our team. He's a season ticket holder of the Sixers. He sits courtside. So he's going through and he's talking about JoJo and he's talking about Ben and and different things. And he gets to me and he says to me, when I watch you play, you're at war with yourself. And I thought to myself, that's really fucked up that he would say that for the team. (laughs) But the other part of me was like, maybe there's some truth to that. And I'm wondering if there's truth to that with you. Cause I've seen it on you. There's this dialogue that happens. You're not necessarily talking to the refs or the coach or your teammates. It's just constant and and recurring.
1: I would agree. I think anyone who knows me, you know, I always, anyone who always asks who's the hardest person to guard. And I say it's myself because it's always, Me going against me on the court. And that's no disrespect to any other NBA players or anyone in this world. I just always felt that my biggest opponent was always myself. You know, when you're so passionate and you love the game so much and you want to be so great that sometimes instead of trying to defeat the opponent, you're trying to defeat yourself and your older self. So, you know, on the court, sometimes I always, always feel that I'm having that inner dialogue with myself about that was good, but it wasn't great. And that, you know, that was, that was okay, but it could have been better. And, you know, it fuels me all the time. It always fuels me to be want to be better and try to get to that next level. Uh, but sometimes, like you, you know, you could probably see it sometimes on a lot of our face that it takes the joy away sometimes because you always feel yeah. you're, you're fighting an uphill battle that you're never actually gaining any traction on. So, uh, you know what, it's something that uh, I would say would be a problem if it didn't get me to the NBA at this point. So I would, uh, I would say I'll keep it
0: as it going. Interesting, you say that because I think. There's like a balance I think you have to weigh when you have that sort of trait. And it's it's a good thing at times and it can be a detriment at times. But overall, I guess what you're saying is that it's it's part of it's part of your competitive edge. It's yeah. part of what makes you great.
1: Absolutely. I would say that. I think that's something that's always pushed me to be want to be better. You know, I've never felt, you know, that I wanted to be stagnant. You know, I've never wanted to be at one point in my career and have this kind of level of skill set and physical fitness or whatever the case may be and be fine with it. I always wanted to be better than I was before. And um it always pushes me. I know you as a shooter, I you know, I'm not as good a shooter as you as uh obviously, but um, I know for you, if I was you, you know, I would always be saying, wow, you know, I made that shot, but I barely made it. It should have been a swish, you know, like you're always looking for the swishes. And then when it's a swish, you're like, I just wanted to teleport it. And, you know, and, and there's little things like that. You're just being competitive with yourself because you want to be great and you want to be the best of the best. And, you know, um, you know, when you are going up there and you're out there playing the game, and you're doing what you do for a living and you're you're at your craft. You don't ever want to be recognized at your job as being good. You want to be known as great or the best. So that's always the inner dialogue I'm always having with myself. You know, you want to leave no doubt on the court.
0: There are times when I make shots and I I like react in a negative way yeah. when it goes in because it, it hit too much rim. Exactly. And you're like, man, it should not feel like that. And you get mad at
1: yourself for making a shot that you made and it didn't feel good. And uh my biggest worries has always been if I make shots when they're not feeling good and then missing shots when they feel good. I always felt that's the more detrimental to me when... They go in and they don't feel good at all because you feel like
0: you have no control over your uh, your craft at that moment. It's kind of just luck at that point. So when you first came in to this conference room that we're recording this podcast in, we were talking about your game last night. And you said to me, you have a hard time, I guess, decompressing after games. You're up, you're wired or whatever. Is that part of that because you're having this inner dialogue for like three? three hours and the game ends and then you've got to replay everything in your mind and then talk about it with yourself absolutely i i I can't
1: tell you how many times that happens I, i know for instance a lot of times we have games and it doesn't matter if i went out there and had 40 and 20 you know i'm in the locker room sitting in the in the in the chair slouched over just looking like i'm in the zone or like we're just starting the game i'm in a daze uh I'm just replaying every single moment in the game that I've stored in my mind as film for myself, and it's like I'm just revising all of them. Like, yeah, I made this, I made this hook shot, but maybe I could have got it up and under. Maybe I could have did this. Maybe I could have done that. And you're just replaying every single moment, and then you don't replay it once, you don't replay it twice. You're playing it like seven, eight, nine times. For me, I'm always just thinking about the game and thinking about everything that went wrong, everything that went right. How could have been even more right? You know. It's true what you said, and it's uh, it's just part of my competitive edge. It's just, just who
0: I am. My dad knows me really well. He knows how how messed up I am in the head. He. Used to make me write head case on my shoes in high school. And that ain't the only one. My dad yeah. was right there with you. Yeah. And, uh, but, but he knows like some of my actually career highs, like in the NBA, like as I'm setting career highs, you know, 27, 29, 31, whatever I get to that level, like I would always miss free throws. Always. And so he would text me after the game and be like, I know all you're thinking about is the missed free throws. I'm oh. like, you, you hit it. Exactly. That's how my dad is exactly. I've had games like
1: that. And I remember um, last year we played the Knicks and we lost and it was hurting me so bad. You could see it in my face and thinking about the loss the whole time. He said, I I know it hurts. My dad calls me. He says, I know it hurts really bad, but you missed three free throws too. You probably cost them the game. And I said, wow, you know, I really probably did. And that's what exactly what I was thinking too, that, you know, if you hit those three free throws, you know, maybe the game wouldn't have been so close or, or whatever the case may be. And, um, it doesn't matter if it's a win or loss, you're always thinking about every single time you could have done something to either make the game more comfortable for everybody or get it out of reach of the opponent. And, uh, it, uh you know, it, it happens. It's something I think we both know if, always go through every single day, no matter what happens. That's why games to me are the most stressful days in the world.
0: You know, yeah. it takes me a day to really get back to my normal <laughs> self. They are high stress. Um, are you are you aware what sort of the classification of uh, an NBA unicorn is?
1: <laughs> uh, it's you been thrown it,
0: around, you know, just a person who's able to do it all and uh, be as versatile as possible on the court. And typically, these unicorns come in in, in larger sizes. I mean, that's <laughs> you know, I like I'm going down the list. I'm trying to think. So you were classified as a unicorn, uh, Joel Embiid. Uh, I would I would put Kevin Durant in there, uh, Christophs Porzingis, another one of my teammates Ben Simmons, Giannis. You know I I think there's been like two. I've been in the league twelve years. There's been two real like changes in my time in the league, and one is like sort of this evolution of like positionless basketball, yeah. and then the other one is the evolution of the NBA big man and one of the things that makes you a unicorn is your shooting ability. And I don't think people really saw that at Kentucky. And I wasn't even aware, like when you were coming out, like that you could shoot. I mean, I think you're at around 37%, which is above league, league average the last two years at like three and a half attempts a game. So you're like a fairly high volume shooter at seven feet shooting above league average. Where did this skill develop? I need to know. I've been
1: shooting threes my whole career, actually. It's funny because I went to Kentucky and it was kind of something that they were talking about either having me shoot or not shoot at all. And Cal wanted me to take the other route, which is not shoot at all, and kind of hit it in his back pocket for whatever the case may be. But... You know, I was in New Jersey. I was one of the state leaders in shooting three-pointers made. And I've been just shooting the rock for a long time. And, uh, you know, obviously I went to college. I took a year off, you know, a year hiatus. And then when I came in the league, I, I went back to um being the player I usually am, which is trying to be as versatile as possible and be able to show my full package. And uh, I was able to shoot more. I was able to shoot more and uh really
0: have my game open up more. When I was growing up, though, like, nobody was telling big guys to work on their threes. Yes. You would tell people to stay in the paint. So either there was a player that sort of influenced you to like, oh, I can go shoot threes. Mm-hmm. Or there was a coach or someone yeah. clearly in your ear at yeah. a young age saying like, you need to be able to shoot.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll I, I tell you right now, uh, my dad must've knew the future. I don't know what it was, what whatever crystal ball he had, but from a young age, he always taught me first how to be a guard. And then I actually learned how to be a big man later. So, uh, you know, always just having me run around and play to one, play to two, play to five, you know, just switching it up on me all practice. And it was always big on me having my my free throws correct and, ha- and being able to shoot the three well. And uh obviously, as you know, always have a right hand hooks, you know, to yeah. go to. So uh just always teaching me footwork and how to be a guard. And then the second half of our workouts will always be like big men stuff, you know, footwork, making left hand layups and drop steps and what to do if I was to throw this at you or whatever the case may be. So. You know, I learned the game a lot literally just by my dad being a high school coach. He used to have me as a more of like a walk on more of like a kid who was on the sideline who was able to jump in practice and be on the um, practice squad. So I was always on the practice squad. I was playing against the varsity and JV and uh every single day. So I was, you know, playing basketball, maybe five hours a day with about three hours of actual five on five action. So, you know, I was just learning literally by playing, you know, finding ways to get my feet right, how to be faster, think on my feet better. So I was just becoming a smarter
0: player, a better player by just, you know, playing the game night in, night out. I gotcha. Where do you think it goes from here for the big man? Because like the other day we were playing Cleveland. All right. And Kevin Love was hurt, knee or hip, you know, soreness, something like that. So he's out of the game. They started uh, one of their young guys at center, uh, one of the foreign kids, and he didn't play much. And then for, for most of the game, it was like LeBron at the four, Jeff Green at the five, you know, and then they're, they're guards. And then they just switched everything. And it's, it's similar to how Golden State plays, but it just seems like the league is just trending so much in that direction. And I'm wondering if it's like – if this is cyclical, if this is just going to be for a short period of time – or if, let's say, 10, 12 years from now, all the big men, all the centers, all the seven-footers are like Porzingis and you? <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's just
1: changing. You know, humans are just getting faster, stronger. So, I mean, you have to adjust with the period of time. You know, I'm watching seventh graders, eighth graders do windmills and games and stuff. So, you know, it's it's absolutely insane what I'm watching now. So. Obviously, there's so much more Zach's of the big men now in the league. And like you said, you saw Jeff Green at the five, LeBron at the four. Just think about that. Jeff Green is able to be thrown in there as a Kevin Love or a Tristan Thompson and 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 have to play their roles. You know, that just shows you that, you know, those Kevin Love, Tristan Thompson are able to switch out and do what everyone else needs them to do from one through five. So... Obviously, the big man, I don't, it's changing as the outlook of it was, you know, when you're seeing, uh, the Tim Duncans and you're seeing the Shaquille O'Neal's, you know, it's stay in the paint, protect the rim and, you know, do all these things. Now you're asking your five men, hey, you know, I need you to guard Steph Curry coming up and then, and then when you get a chance, switch on to a Draymond and then quickly change your brain to go back to being a five, you know, so much more is axed. Who knows? I mean, I, I keep seeing people getting stronger and faster. So, you know, who knows 10 years from now, you know, five years from now, how the NBA will look. You're, you know, you'll probably be seeing the five running the point guard. You got Ben, who is like six, nine, who yeah. is your point guard. And you have a six, three guy at a small 4 let's say. It's amazing. Like you would think you would be the point guard and Ben's over there running the show. So the game is changing. The game is changing. And, um, uh, You know, who knows where we'll be in 10 years, but I'm glad um, me and you are here to watch it because it's
0: getting interesting and it's very fun. I won't be around in 10 years. But you bring up a great point, though, about big men and just in general and the amount of information that you guys have to process on a defensive possession. And I think that's literally the hardest thing. Like, we, I have to know my concepts. I have to know our team coverages and all that. But – really the anchor of sort of a modern nba defense is is a versatile 5 or a versatile 4 and someone who can at one moment be in a in a drop so in sort of a zone coverage and at the next moment be up to touch on a ball screen or even possibly like a lot of times with us against the warriors we would have dj switch on to Steph. yeah and i'm wondering like if if cuz offense obviously comes fairly easy to you but like is that is that been a challenge early in your career, just being able to process all of that and understanding those different coverages? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you come out of college,
1: you know, you're playing a certain type of defense, you know. It's just like any coach you've been part of, you know. It takes some time to get used to their system the way they like to run their defensive schemes and uh, try to be adequate to that. And um, for us, you know, when you look at big men now, you know, you're seeing a big guy, you know, war, pick and roll, going to ice on the other side, running full speed to then go – Take that away. Then after now, all of a sudden, like we said, fives are shooting at an unbelievable rate now that the NBA has never seen. Now you're icing or taking away the drive to the paint to have to run from the paint all the way to the three point line to contest the five man shooting a three. You know, it's it's a job and you have to understand all the coverages you have to be able to not only understand what your guy likes to do at the five or the four, but then you have to understand what the tendencies of the one, the two and three, because you never know when you're going to have to switch on them and have to guard them on whatever the case may be on the pick and roll. So it's something that's different. You see old school film of NBA. You're seeing, you know, you're not seeing Shaquille O'Neal run at Abdul Rahim, you know, (laughs) at the three point line, you know, everyone's playing different sides and it's just amazing. You see transition defense in NBA now. It's so the norm now is seeing the five on the one and, and the one on the five and, you know, the, the five's not posting up the one. He's at the three point line wanting it there. You know, I remember growing up, you know, you would used to see, uh, for me, it was Memonaker on the yeah, Jazz yeah, yeah. and you see him shooting a three and you're like, man, he could really shoot. And you forget he's the five. You know, he's supposed to be down there taking control of the paint. And I remember watching him a lot. I was like, man, you know, if you could shoot like him at his, his size, it's unbelievable. So, and he was like unheard of at that position, you know, shooting that well. So, it's amazing now. We say back in the day, Memner Kerr was an unheard of uh, hero of the big man, and now everyone does it. So obviously, like we said, the game is changing. The NBA
0: is changing. It's going to be interesting to see. One of the things that has happened with sort of positionless basketball is like when I first got in the league, like uh, even with me, like a question mark was, can he guard his position? Yeah. You know what I mean? Can Can he guard other two guards? Like, or where do we hide him on defense? But now, like, even as a guard, you have to be able to guard multiple positions and be prepared to switch on a big and, like, put up a fight if you get taken down to the post. When you were describing, by the way, this this action, right, that the five men is responsible for as both a rim protector and now in, in modern NBA being able to guard on the perimeter, like, I immediately thought of the Celtics. And what sort of makes them so hard to guard is Al Horford. Yeah and their guards are sort of well aware that if they can sort of string the big out on any ball screen and create that 10 to 15 foot gap where when they throw back to Horford now he's got a shot or the big guy closes out recklessly and Horford drives that and then the ripple effects of that
1: there's even a third option you know he gets the ball and he does a dribble handoff with Brown or uh, Marcus Smart you know now you're getting people in rhythm you know now they have space to drive which they are great at and Back in the day, we wouldn't be talking about the best play would be having a big man pop and, you know, to get 15 feet of space, you know, yeah. and now in the days, you know, that 15 feet of space is almost a guaranteed two point play, you know. So Al, I've been fortunate enough to play with Al for the Dominican team yeah. and, and learn all his tricks and trade and realize how important a mid-range shot is to an NBA player, especially to a regular player. And a lot of times, you know, when I was coming in the league, I realized how important was, you know, not the three, not even the layup, but just that mid-range shot. If you could really get that going, that gets your three-point shot going, that gets your layups going, gets your confidence rolling. So... He taught me a lot, and you, I remember playing against Allen. You just see Al moving everywhere, you know. And it's never really fast; it's just very strategic, you know. It's always, you know, I'm gonna be here because I'm I gotta be here and need to be here. Never, you know, uber athletic, but just very smart. The one thing that makes Al so good, and my time being with him, I realized he never has any wasted steps. All his steps are calculated. Like I need to be here. I don't need to take five steps. I need to take three. I'm going to take three steps to get here. You know, like, it's just so calculated. There's no wasted movement. And when no wasted movement becomes much sharper of an offense, much sharper of a defense, that's what makes him so valuable to the Celtics. He gives them that. That gel, you know, and it's not more of an emotional state. It's just more of a, as a teammate, as a player, you know, he makes them click easier because he's where he needs to be
0: and there's no waiting for him to get there. He's always there. And that's what makes, you know, them so scary. When we played them, I guess 10 days ago, two weeks ago, something like that, I said after the game, I was like, this guy just doesn't get enough credit. And he, he really is. He's like the, he's the hub. He's the hub. He's kind of, what makes that offense work with his passing and everything um just just a great player I want to go back real quick before we change topics on the unicorn front who is your ultimate unicorn if you had a unicorn power rankings who's number one I mean I think everyone if you was with jojo
1: Jojo definitely is saying himself I hands down no jojo will say himself uh and obviously I already knew that how that was going uh and you know I'm gonna opt we're all going to pick ourselves, you okay. know. We all feel that we all could do something special on the court, but it's just amazing. Now, we're in a league where we have not—we don't have the one unicorn. We have multiple unicorns, you know. The land is full of them. You're not supposed to see unicorns, and, we, and <laughs> yeah, if right. you're an NBA fan, you see them yeah. on a nightly yeah.
0: basis. Yeah. Years ago, you'd say you'd never see one. Now, you're seeing them everywhere. For, for me, it's—I I, got to—no offense, but for me, it's it's KD. Cause, and I'll tell you why, because his, defensively, he's been amazing yes. since he went to Golden State, so that, that's part of it. But— Like when you really think about his skill set, he does things that no one at his size has ever been able to do before. And to me, I, I said this. Uh, on one of my podcasts prior, but like to me, he's one of the greatest shooters ever. Period. Yes. Like he, he's led the league in scoring four times. He's been an incredible defensive player the last two years. You can take all that stuff away. He will still go down as one of the greatest shooters, period, ever. I think we all know he uses
1: the gifts by God that he was given very well. Like, you know, his shooting ability, he could shoot, but it's very hard to block KD because he's so long and athletic and he jumps so high on his shot by that it's very hard to even get a chance to get a timing on jumping and blocking the ball in a three-point shot. And he makes those difficult shots. It's like a Steph thing, you know, like Steph Curry. You know, they make the difficult shots. You know, you could be right there in his face, guarding tremendously well, and he still hits the shot. And that's what I think makes KD so special is, you know, it's just his God-given abilities, you know, his God-given traits, you know, his long arms, you know, his size, his his length. And like I've always said, I've grown up, my favorite player in in the league present was KD, and it's always been. And I take no disrespect by you saying that at all. (laughs) Like, I think he's... I think he's fabulous. I think he's one, you know, I've always been excited going against him and always watching him play because he's just one of those players, you know, you never know no matter how much the league changes that we may ever see again, you know, and Giannis is an amazing player and what he does with his length is crazy, but, KD and his shooting ability is second to none with his size. And it's uh, it's
0: amazing what he's been able to do. We were talking about like Porzingis and and you and KD and and even JoJo, just the ability to shoot at that size. And then you have like Giannis and Ben who Ben doesn't, I don't think he takes a shot outside the paint, but he gets, he gets where he wants to go at all times.
1: Like the thing I said, everyone, uh, when they talked to me about Ben, when he got drafted, they said, do you think Ben will be good? I said, listen, I don't think you're going to need a jump shot when you can get in the paint whenever you want. So, so yeah. everyone has their own traits and they have their own special abilities, you know. Yeah. It's like a video game, you know. Everyone has their little trait and their special abilities. Remember, like, old school, sure. like, 2K has their little badges yeah. and stuff like that. I was going to say Street Fighter, but Street yeah. Fighter. Yeah. 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 But, you know, everyone has, like, that's a yeah. perfect example. Everyone has their little special trait and their special ability. And, you know, Ben just gets in the paint, you know, his size and... Uh, his ability to get in the paint is is amazing, especially for a rookie. Giannis has his length and his speed and the size at that. And obviously for how tall me, Jojo and Porzingis are for, for us to be able to do what we do is, you know, obviously unheard of. And KD, you know, they lie about his size. He's much taller in person. And And then for him to be able to really be the one. That's unheard of. It's it's interesting
0: because when you when you think of a unicorn, it evokes like just like rainbow colors and like a white horse and like <laughs> these really like happy thoughts. But really, unicorns in the sense of an NBA unicorn, you guys are more like uh, Mortal Kombat. And yeah. you each have your own finishing move.
1: Yeah, it's a little more you know aggressive than a regular unicorn is, you know. You know, unicorns, they walk around and they appeal to little girls and stuff. And yeah. we're using the horn, actually, to try to kill each other most yeah. of the time. So exactly. it's pretty fun.
0: Okay, more with Carl Anthony Towns, but first, a word from today's sponsor. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite NBA team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices. Fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. I actually just used SeatGeek to buy tickets to a Broadway show the other day. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. That's promo code JJ for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, right seat, right now, right from your phone. And now back to my conversation with Carl Anthony Towns. Really curious to ask you about your experience with Tibbs. And before I do, I, uh, I played for Stan Van Gundy for five years and I, I started with him my second year. And i uh, was one of the hardest adjustments that I had to make in my career was was just essentially just learning how to play for him and playing for someone as intense as him. But, you know, looking back, it's been the best thing that ever happened in my career. I wouldn't be who I am without Stan. And, you know, these, both Stan and Tibbs, they come from the same coaching tree with the Riley stuff and, and the Knicks. And I'm wondering how that adjustment was initially and how it is going now even in year two? Uh, I mean, obviously
1: initially, you know, when you're trying to learn something super complicated, especially defensive scheme as complicated yeah. as Tibbs, you know, it takes time because I was already a rookie and now it's only my second year. You know, I had no stability in, that, in those four years leading up high school. I had a coach. College, I had a coach. Left in one year and then my first year tragically lost flip. Yeah. I was with Sam Mitchell and then now this year I'm with Coach Tibbs. So I've never really had a true defensive scheme to stick with. You know, I've always been adjusting on the fly. So when he first came in, you know, I just really wanted to learn. I took some extra time with him. We started early with each other, just that dialogue of how he wanted to do stuff and how it should be done. And now, you know, leading up to now, I understand the system much better. Like any player, you understand where you could really be yourself and play your own instincts in. you know, put your own instincts into things. And it's been amazing because, you know, even with Jimmy, Todd, Aaron Brooks, you know, guys who've played for Tibbs for a much longer period of time, they understand the scheme. So, you know, it's always great to ask them questions and be able to play off of them. Times when I mess up on defense, they're able to help me out because they understand where they need to be in the scheme. So I always trust that they're there. Those things make a big difference. And Tibbs is is an amazing defensive coach. He's an amazing coach. He he gives us all the opportunities we need to win the game. And, you know, when you have someone who's that passionate about winning – who loves the game that much and who's willing to give all his time to have us as prepared as possible, that makes our culture better. It makes us feel better knowing that
0: whenever we step onto the court, we we feel we're the most prepared team in the NBA. You bring up a great point because having played for Stan and Tibbs, of course, same personality types. Yeah. I'll be delicate, (laughs) but their personality types at times uh, can be intense and and wear on you. But the thing when I, when I played for Stan was I I would always go back to like, what is this guy's agenda? Mm. And it was the same agenda every time it was winning. And I've never seen, and I've been around great coaches in the NBA, and this is not a knock on any coach I've ever had because I've had great coaches, but I've never seen someone uh, outwork Stan. I've never seen someone more prepared than Stan. So whatever sort of outside stuff happened, I always would come back to that core thing. Like, this guy is about winning. He treats everyone the same. He holds everybody accountable. He's in the film room. He's the first guy there, last guy to leave. And all the other stuff I was able to sort of, like, detach from because of that. I completely agree.
1: You know, like when you look at the Army, you know, let's say the Army or the military, when your commander-in-chief is fully on your side and has your back no matter what happens, it has no hidden agenda for himself but just to win. I mean, it makes the morale that much yeah, higher. Sir. And just like we you would stand with us with Tibbs, you know, we understand that every time we step on that court, he has our back regardless of what happens. And he's always uh, going to be there for us. So like I said, when we go in the game, we always feel that we have an advantage because we have Tibbs because we understand that we're going in, we have We have the most prepared coaching staff. We have the most, he's prepared us the most for our game. He understands every intricacy that comes with the game and, and we're ready to go. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether we lose or we win, he prepared us for that moment. And, you know, if we lose, we understand it's not his fault. It's our fault. We didn't get the job done. He got his job done and more, and we just didn't get our side done. The coach can only do so much. He can't step on the court and play at the same time. So we understand, you know, if we win, The reason we won is because Tibbs put the work in and the coaching staff did a great job of getting us prepared for that game. And if we lose, Tibbs and the coaching staff didn't cost us the game. We cost ourselves the game because we didn't go out there and do what we needed to do for 48 minutes or 48
0: plus minutes and get the job done. That's really interesting, man. I I mean... I'm not going to lie. I, I I sometimes question game plans and you're saying like, no, you
1: can't like when you, when you, when you have a guy who spent that much time on a game plan, you know, the thing about Tibbs, Tibbs doesn't just make a game plan and then say, that's it. You know, Tibbs is giving us a game plan that he's probably revised four to five times and truly believes this is what we need to do. And with, if that game plan doesn't work, he always has the plan B game plan ready to go in the second quarter whenever we need it. And you know, it's up to us to adjust. At the end of the day, we're NBA players, but also this is our job. You know, we're getting paid to adjust on the fly if we need to. Right. We're, we're getting paid to get, go out there and garner W. So if we don't do our job, no one could blame him for not doing his job. He did his job. He was
0: prepared. He had everything ready to go. It's up to us to uh, get the job done. One of the hot button uh, topics around your team is the, the issue of playing time and, and sort of uh, how much you guys play your starters versus your bench Relative to the rest of the NBA and and Tibbs I think had de- developed a reputation a little bit in Chicago for playing his starters a lot of minutes and he's doing the same thing here. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Are you are you okay with the minutes you're playing? Do you think short term, long term even now at twenty two? Do you think about that sort sort of thing?
1: Um Yeah, I do. I think about a short term and long term. You know, obviously short term. 22 years old, just turned 22. I'm young, eager to play all the time, always, always so happy to lace my shoes up and go on that court. So obviously, you know, if I feel that I can help our team win, I want to be on the court as much as possible. And for me, long term wise, is it probably the smartest thing? No, (laughs) but but, you know, you don't think about the long term because you don't get to the long term without taking care of the short term in the present. So I I always live by that rule. You know, I don't ever think about the past. I don't ever think about the future. I stay playing in the present and present. We may need me to play more minutes, you know, or I want to play more minutes, whatever the case may be. And I'm never going to argue with Tibbs with, you know, Tibbs makes his decisions. He's thought about it and he's, you know, he's thought about it with other coaches and they've come up with the decision that, you know, we need Carl to play. I think it's 35 minutes a game, you know, which is less for me than last year. You know, last year it was 38, you know, now it's 35 this year. So actually I've lost minutes. So the thing about it is, you know, you know, we're NBA players, he's the head coach, but we're still men. If anyone had a problem with the minutes, you know, it's as easy as knocking on his door and talking to him about it and having a thoughtful discussion about it. But like I said, we all have faith in Tibbs. If Tibbs has made the decision that we need to play these minutes, he's must have thought it over and said that. We need you to do this for us to win, whether it play five minutes, whether it play thirty-eight minutes, you know, everyone has a role to do and a job to do, and we just gotta continue to put the job first before
0: anything else. To be clear, I'm not questioning oh, Tibbs. No, 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 no. I, I know I just I want to say that to the audience as well. I'm not questioning Tibbs because I think, you know, every every coach has a philosophy and and yeah. to me as a player, and I'll say this, like to me as a player, like I want to play. Yeah. And exactly. like even like we have our sports science team and they'll come to me and say, you know, we're going to try to limit your minutes to this versus this. And we had the same thing in LA and I think every player, there's a responsibility for each player to kind of know his body. And we're going to talk about that in a second with you and, and sort of the steps you've taken to do that. But, I think there's a responsibility to just be honest with yourself and say like, Hey, I, I can't handle I this. Can't. And I've told, I've told the 76ers that like, you can't, you can't play me like more than 36 minutes in a game. Yeah. 32 is good with yeah. me. I think I'm averaging yeah. 33 of the season. But I'm like, 32 is ideal. That's an ideal minute. 28, not enough for me. Yeah. I don't like 28. Yeah. 36 is exactly. too much, but like, exactly. you know what I mean? And it's, it's so to me, it's like, it's like you have a responsibility to communicate that to the coach and it it is sort of a two way thing.
1: Yeah, I think like you said, like it's the same thing. Every, we're professionals, you know. We should know every intricacy about our body. And I know everything, little thing from my blood type, how sensitive it is to certain foods. Yeah. To what causes inflammation in my body from food to how many degrees my, this, my right knee could go, how many degrees my left knee. I have all that information because I like to know about my body. I went to Kentucky to be in kinesiology. So all I want to know is be in a medical field and learn the study of the kinetic movement of the body. So all that information is very important. And you know, you have to know, you have to, you've played this game for what? Everyone who's coming into the league is mostly, I'll say 20 years. You've been on the earth for 20 years and. Let's see even JoJo for an example. That's what five years, six years. You understand how much your body can take on a day. You understand, okay? You know what? It's been training camp. It's been preseason. I maybe had half of my first year. I don't think thirty-eight is the way to go. Maybe it's thirty. You know, thirty-one. You know, it's just like a pitcher. You think closers don't know they can't only make it two innings? You know, throwing that kind of heat or whatever the case may be, it, it comes like. I remember when I was a pitcher, just quick story, I, I used to be able to be in Little League and stuff, throwing seven innings, you know, six innings straight, you know, night in, night out. We had a baseball tournament. I'll throw every single day, whatever the case may be. And, you know, I realized as I was going along, you know, seven innings turned to five. Five was like, you know, I got to the third inning. My arm is like spaghetti, you know? So, you know, you realize, you are like, maybe, you know, this is not as many innings I should be throwing. That's the way it is. So, you know, I you realize, you know, but everyone, like you said, is a, we're, we're athletes, we're, we're competitors, gladiators out there trying to go out there and compete. For me, this is the analogy I like to use, like, if you go to school, right? If you go to school, you, you, you want to make sure you're going to school from that eight to three. You know, you no one wants to go to school and it's like eight to 12. You only got me in school. You might as well not have went to school at all. So it's either if I lace my shoes up, yeah. I better be going to school for the full day, not for half a day. You know, I want to play the minutes. I don't want to feel like, like you said, 28, maybe too little,
0: 32, perfect. Part of it is like a pride thing. Like you don't want to admit like like that the workload is too much. Like part part of
1: smart players like you understand this is what it is. Like nature has given me this ability. I'm going to have to take it for what it is. You can't, you can't make something uh, more than what it is already. You know, it's, it is what it is. And it's, you know, pride always is going to come in hand. You're going to want to play. Forty-eight minutes a
0: game, and have <laughs> sure guys that average forty minutes that are like, I don't, I don't play enough. I'm yeah, like, you know, how uh, many minutes do you want to play? Do you want to play the whole you game? Gotta get some water, <laughs> I gotta get some water in there. We just give you a minute for water. It's like a big picture thing too, just in this sort of notion about the NBA and, and rest and the scheduling and. Uh, you know, they changed the schedule this year and made the regular season longer in terms of the days. So there was, there was less back to backs. There's talk of a shortening of a season. I don't know who's talking about that, but players are not talking about that. I hope that never happens. But anyways, what I was going to say was I had this conversation with Steve Nash like four or five years ago. We, We had coffee one afternoon and we were talking about just like, you know, prolonging your career and all this stuff. And, you know, one of the things he said to me was like, look, we only have one chance to play in the NBA. Like at some point your career ends and you can't ever do it again. So that's why for me, I'm like, play me as much as you want. Don't give me rest day. I don't want to take games off. Like I don't want to be on a team where they're like managing like you, you can't play tonight. Like, no, you're, you're paying me to play. This is what I love to do. I want to play. And I think there's like a balance between what we know now on the sports science side in terms of load management and. Just like that desire to like maximize your your career and your your time in this league. I think so. I,
1: like you said, you know, you play in the present. And if I could play right now and I'm able to play now, that's not taking away if you have injuries, sure. back injuries, whatever the case may be, like Steve Nash. had, But if you're injured, you know, obviously you take care of your body first because you want to be able to walk and be with your kids when your career's over. But you got to take it as it is. You know, if if I'm able to play and I could lace my shoes up and I could walk out on that court and play, I'm going to play. And I use that school analogy again. And I'm not playing half the minutes. You know, if, if, if I got to go and play half of what I what I can because of whatever the case may be, might as well not play at all. And it's either I'm giving everything I have or I'm not, you know, I'm going to just take complete rest to my body. So, yeah, I mean, I mean the situation is different. You know, we have so much great studies on load management and everything, like you said. But at the end of the day, We still don't know everything about the human body. And it's up to us, people living in the body, to understand it uh,
0: as most as possible. On the same sort of topic, there was an article recently uh, on GQ.com, the real-life diet of Carl Anthony (laughs) Pounds, And just immediately jumped out of the page at me because you you measure your portions to the ounce. Yes. Whether it's rice or uh, lean protein or your water intake. You talked earlier about... The angle with which your knee flexes when you land and load and all this stuff, you sound like you have some some OCD tendencies. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I definitely, I definitely do. I've I've always been like that. I've always wanted to be the most knowledgeable yeah. in the room. You know, I always wanted to know as much as possible. And I could give you for a day, for instance, this is an actual day for me. Okay. So, you know, for breakfast, like we talked about, I like pancakes. I love pancakes. And I'm not a big breakfast guy at all. Okay. But let's say for breakfast, I have is two breakfasts before the workout or practice. You know, I have five pancakes, three cups of fruit and 24 ounces of water. After the practice, I'm having another 24 ounces of water with taking that three cups of fruit, cutting it in half. So it's 1.5 cups before practice, after practice, another 1.5. And then with the pancakes, I have another five pancakes.
0: How big are these pancakes? Oh, Ten pancakes? Oh, I'm eating them. Oh, I feel
1: God. like the rock half the time. <laughs> oh, my God. And then at lunch, I'm having um, six to nine ounces, depending, you know, how hungry I really am. Six to nine ounces of uh, chicken breast, non-breaded. I'm having four cups of rice. I'm having uh, four cups of vegetables, and then I'm doing the same meal again for dinner. These are chocolate chip pancakes. Oh yes, I, I I'm a man of, I'm a man of the people. I need
0: chocolate chip pancakes. Okay, so, so where does this? Uh, it's like a control thing. You, you're trying to control everything. You said you wanted information. You said you wanted knowledge. Where does this extend in terms of, let's say, the way you work out, the way, what you decide to do either pre and post practice, or let's say. Pre and post shoot around, mm-hmm. or even pre game, post game. Because for me, it is this. Yeah. Is, this is why it clicked with me. Because like for me, it's it's literally during the season. It's a twenty four seven thing. Even during the off season, a little bit. Like there's not many decisions I make where I'm not thinking to myself, like wow. how is this going to affect me, and why am I going to yeah, do it? I'm, even I'm, if I'm, I'm deciding on the weekend, like I'm going to have a beer, uh, absolutely. or four, or right. four. <laughs> like <laughs> I got to make that decision. Like okay, what is what is the repercussions of this? Yeah. It it extends to my entire life. I mean, it does. It, it's I think when I came in the league,
1: but I already I already knew it in high school how important a routine is, okay. and I always felt that a routine is everything. Uh, when I talked to KG coming through, he said you'll be great when you find out exactly what your routine is, and I've always had a routine. Like I need to do it. Like I need to be one of the. I need to be the first one in the gym. I need to follow this exact regimen from these times. Like it can't go over by a minute or two minutes. You know, it has to be exactly when that's over. When that time hits, it's over. It's just when you keep a routine, no matter how strenuous the season gets, it just feels like it goes in clockwork. You know, it's just, okay, I'm starting to process already for this day. I'm starting to process for that day. And it's the same thing like with that with me. You know, I always believed, I've always been told by my dad and I've always believed it. Is that when you go into anything in life, for, let's say for sports or for anything, the more you take out the factors of you failing is what makes your success more probable to happen. So I've always taken out all the guesswork. You know, when you don't know, it, 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 that counts as being on the side of you failing. So I've always been big about if I know exactly what's happening and I take away all the things that can make me fail, the uncertainty, the Bad diet, not taking care of my body in this sort of fashion, or me doing this or treating people like that. Those are all factors into me not being successful. So, what do you do? Okay, well, I'm gonna control my diet. I'm gonna know exactly what I'm putting in my body. Your body's a Ferrari. You gotta fill it with good <laughs> gas, you know, with premium gas. I'm not going with 87 with it, you know? So, I gotta take care of my body, understand how my body feels and how to attack it and make it feel better. We always were a family, you know, obviously church people and always very spiritual. So taking care of people, you know, because when you take care of people, come back to take care of you. And when you take all those factors out that could lead to your demise, you just see yourself continuously going up the stairway of success.
0: First of all, your dad sounds like a, a very wise man. <laughs> <laughs> I was, He really clearly had a, a huge impact on you. What your dad said to you about success and failure and control and all that stuff and, and sort of what factors you can and can't control is is similar to what I heard Ray Allen say. And as a shooter, I always sort of identify with Ray and when he would talk about... His shooting routine, whether it was pre or post-practice, before a game, whatever it may be, he'd say, I, I, w- I would never change my routine. Whether I'm going through a slump or whether I'm hitting a 10-game stretch where it's, I'm shooting 60% from three, I'm not going to change that. That's the one thing that I can control is my routine. So I'm not going to fluctuate that. And I think as athletes, because of the high-profile nature of our jobs, pressure, whatever you want to call it, that we face during the season, there's like a there's a comforting factor in doing things over and over again because you can control them it's exactly like that you know
1: there's not many things we can control during the season we can't control you going on the court and twisting an ankle you know you can't control that you can't control being tired because you got in at three in the morning and you got to play the next day at at two o'clock you know you can't control stuff like that that's what you're given those are the cards you've been dealt now how you play your cards is a different story and like Ray Allen said, I've went through slumps where, you know, I wasn't feeling like I was playing my best and I wasn't clicking on all cylinders. You stick with your routine because it always turns around. You know, there's always going to be a brighter day and it's going to come sooner than later. So I've always been big about routine and I've realized a lot of times when I've went through slumps, my routine has not only helped me basketball wise, but it's helped me stick together off the court, you know, with my life. Cause I'm so I'm looking forward to okay, I gotta get to go through this routine. I already know how this is gonna go through, you know. You never know what's gonna happen off the court. That's yeah. life for all of us, regardless of Ram Bay player or regular person, whatever the case may be. When you have a routine, it just
0: makes life feel that much more uh connected and uh less stressful. I wanna hit you with one last thing before I let you go and and that's just uh to talk a little bit about you know, athletes uh, sort of taking a more participatory nature in, in activism. And that can manifest in a lot of different ways, obviously, with Colin Kaepernick and, and his protests about police brutality. And then it could also manifest in, in sort of this nature of being anti-Trump. And I've I've spoken on that before. You wrote an article after Charlottesville in the Players' Tribune, and you had this great quote. In response to sort of the stick to sports crowd and what you said was basketball is what I do for a living it's not who I am as a man and it, it just made me think like why why shouldn't athletes be able to express political views one way or another in the same way that a plumber or a doctor or a teacher expresses political views do, do you do what do you what do you think the reason is that people are some people are uncomfortable with athletes taking an active role in in political activism
1: you know, I've thought about that and there's so many different ways the answer could go. For some people, I think that they feel that w- what problems do they have? You know, this doesn't relate to them. You know, yeah. they have this financial security blanket over them or whatever the case may be or or to all oh, they're doing it for the publicity or whatever or whatever the case may be. That doesn't have anything to do with us off the court. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we all have jobs and whether you actually don't or do have one, you know, we're all people at the same, at the end of the day, we have the same blood, we have, you know, the same flesh, we we all go in the grave at the same feet, you know, so at the end of the day, We've been blessed with a platform. Right. More people listen to us, whether it be for good or for evil. You choose what kind of people you attract with your platform by your actions. So like you, you know, I've always chose to use my platform for good. And I've always never wanted to speak about something that I wasn't knowledgeable about or, yeah. and I didn't fully understand. I've always spoke about things that I felt knowledgeable about, felt very passionate about and had a serious concern over. And you know, with Charlottesville and everything happened, I felt that I had to speak up because like, I think a lot of a lot of other athletes are. You're very conscious of what people will say. You're always trying to make everyone happy. You always want to please
0: everybody. So... Never read the, the comment section exactly. on Twitter and never. Instagram. <laughs> never. yeah, that, that is a death. It has death. Never please everyone. Never. Trust me. <laughs> never can.
1: You're always doing something wrong. But when I... Thought about writing and I said, you know, this needs to be said. And I don't know how many people listen to my words, but if I help one person, that's more that was helped with me not writing it. And I wrote it and um, I was very happy with myself. I was very proud of myself for taking a stand, you know, against something that I felt strongly in and just stating my opinions about more of anything about how much love needs to be involved in everything we do. And that love needs to be spread out more throughout the world and throughout our country than it is right now at this point.
0: There's always, I guess, uh, a risk of backlash anytime you sort of speak out. We do this podcast as a risk of backlash. I mean, come on, (laughs) they could they could take take a quote. I know. I agree. I agree. So here's somebody said this to me other the other day, and I I thought this was pretty good. So essentially, you know, athletes, we're we're providing entertain. We're entertainers. We're providing entertainment. We're providing an escape for professional sports fans. And I think when we speak out on things, we are blurring the lines between that escapism and the reality of someone's life. I think that's 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 where I think the stick to sports, because you don't get that with other professions. You don't. You get it a little bit with actors and actresses. Because it's the same sort of yeah. deal. Your movies are an escape. You're not qualified. For some reason, people don't think actors are qualified to speak on like, politics. We, we, like, I like, like haven't had have any intelligence. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. So, I'm JJ Riddick. I say this. I went to Duke. Yeah, I
1: know exactly what I'm speaking
0: about. Right. But, <laughs> but I, so I think that's. I think that's really the the, the core issue of it. And, and what you said is so true, too, in terms of just the money thing. So, we, we, you know, what problems do you have because, you know, you have a, a million-dollar contract or whatever. At the end of your, your article, you said, our president used to host a reality TV show. Why yeah. can't I have a political voice? Yeah. Which basically throws that whole notion of athletes or actors providing escape and, and an entertainment. Because our president, he did that. Yeah. And now he's president. Exactly. I When I wrote
1: that, I kind of just— Wanted to, I knew people were going to jump on the article for the first thing was going to be, like we said, is that you play basketball. You don't know anything yeah. about him. You have no say in anything. But like I said in the article, mostly at the end was that you won't listen to whatever NBA players or let's say professional athletes have to say because you find them in some sorts unintellectual to the conversation yeah. or, or have no say into it. But we're, our president was a reality TV show, uh, major star and now turned president, but he has, a voice that should be listened to at his highest point you know he mostly like you said was on the platform with us as entertainers
0: you know we were entertainers so i think when it comes down in 2017 like everybody should have a voice yeah
1: and if you think about it isn't that why we made facebook myspace twitter it was so everyone feels like they have a voice like these are platforms that You know, that's why there's social media. Socially, everyone's supposed to have a chance to say what they want to say and have it heard. And it's funny how one person says something they can't say, but on Twitter, you can say whatever you want and it's taken as a fact or it's taken as intelligence, you know? And it's, it's not, that's not the way it should go, you know? I think everyone has a voice. I think everyone needs to be heard, regardless if it's bad or good. Everyone has an opinion, you know? We still have a First Amendment, you know? So. You may not agree with everyone saying, but the fact that someone speaks up and speaks their mind and has confidence and says it with, you know, as Kevin Hart would say, so you say it with your chest. You know, if someone says it with their chest, you know, that's all you want to know because everyone has an opinion to what they say. Now, did I agree with Trump on some things? No, but everyone may not agree with that. And that's fine. That's why we have politics. You know, people could disagree and agree, but. You never disregard that person because he doesn't agree with you. You know, there's 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 still human being, you know, like I said, everyone should be given love, regardless if you agree or disagree. There should be a sense of appreciation for that person coming out and saying what he has to say, a sense of respect that always needs to be available in the space and a sense of love that regardless if we agree or disagree, I still care for you as a person.
0: Well, regardless if it's talking about politics, medicinal marijuana, (laughs) or uh, I know you uh, are very active with the Reed Center in New Jersey, you know, just keep doing good, brother. I appreciate that. uh, I have been a a fan of yours and and looking forward to watching your evolution as a player over the rest of your career. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh No, thank you for having me, man. Teach me that jump shot one day. (laughs) All right. Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. One of the reasons it's great, it has smart design, they use premium fabrics, and online, it's an easy, simple shopping experience. Mack Weldon looks great. It feels great. They're crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard, too. They even have a line of silver underwear. Their shirts are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they're shipped right to your door. Here's a great part. If you don't like your first pair of Mack Weldon underwear, you can keep it, and they will still give you your money back. No questions asked. And with Christmas just around the corner, I'm sure you're going to be wanting to get some stocking stuffers for your loved ones. What better gift to give than Mac Weldon underwear? Go to macweldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using the promo code JJ.